0: We've been working our way through this uh, this book during the fall. The ruthless elimination of hurry, and and Sunday by Sunday, we, we try and lift out some of the concepts here and introduce them so that again we can allow them to situate themselves in our lives. Now, unapologetically, I'm I'm ripping off John Mark Comer because unapologetically, he's ripping off Jesus. Uh, we're learning from the practices. And the lifestyle of Jesus. And I wanna, how do I say this? I wanna be honest about this one. There are some messages that come really easily, they write easily, they preach easily. This ain't one of them. And everything in me just wants to jump off the stage and sit in the chairs and listen. Uh, I am the recipient and not just the giver of today's message. Let me start out just with a few sayings from Jesus. These are going to be familiar to some of you, uh, new to others, but regardless of your starting point, I think that somewhere we need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that, that there's a part of us that doesn't like these kind of words and maybe even doesn't agree. Let's start with this one. Jesus is speaking here, Luke 12, verse 15. Watch out, Jesus says. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Or how about this one from Jesus, Luke 12? Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Now, now wait, wait a minute, Jesus. I mean, our. Are you serious about that one? What what about retirement savings? You must know about the inflation crisis. I'm barely surviving as it is, and you want me to start selling and giving away and generosity. Sounds a little irresponsible, Lord. Matthew 6, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothes? Seek first God's kingdom. Okay, Jesus, you lost me on that one. Because that's exactly the stuff we worry about. Money to pay the bills, putting food on the table. Do you have any idea what rent costs in the city, Lord? Not just to mention, you know, student loans. Are, are you expecting me to just sit around and do nothing, pray all day long and give away? Hmm. Jesus again, Mark chapter 4. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things, they come in and they choke the word and they make it unfruitful. So Jesus, are you, are you saying that there is something about wealth that by, very, by its very nature is deceitful? That it can have a toxic, a suffocating effect on my life. That it can choke out my appetite for things that really matter, for a life in the kingdom. Well, let's let Jesus bring it home here. Matthew 19. I tell you this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Pastor, are you saying that, that wealth makes it harder to experience the presence and the reign of God? I mean, there's something about that, that that doesn't seem to compute. We don't like the math. The more we have, the more money we have, the easier life should be, the better it should be. This is, this is not intuitive, it's confusing. If these sayings of Jesus sound just a little bit crazy to you. Can I say this? You're not crazy, and you're not alone. As much as we read these words, everything in the culture in which we live and the ways in which we've been raised will push back against them. And if it if it feels like you're not fully on board with Jesus' teaching around money and around possessions, It could be like many of us who were raised in the church in the West, that we have been given a gospel that was not informed by the teaching of Jesus nearly as much as it was by the teachings of our own generation. There is nothing nothing in your income level or your stage of life or your relationship status. There's nothing that ought to stand in the way between you and the life that Jesus promised, the life that he said is a good life and an abundant life, the life that is truly life. The scripture describes it that way. But it might just be that we have fallen victim to another gospel, another version of what the good life is and how you obtain it. And and for the sake of just brevity, we're going to call it the gospel of America instead of the gospel of Canada and the USA and Europe. We'll just call it the gospel of the Americas, a gospel that makes exactly the opposite claim to what Jesus makes, that in a nutshell, the more you have, the happier you will be. So let's go out and get the new dress or the new pair of shoes or the new set of golf clubs or or our team jersey because that's going to brighten my day. Let's take our car and trade it in for the newer model because it has LED lights around the logo and that's going to be so much better. Uh, nab the bigger, better home or condo or apartment. Make sure you can furnish it with the latest in, in trendy furnishings out of Sweden or wherever trendy furnishings come from. Work your way up the ladder, and if you have to throw a few elbows on the way up, it's okay. You get the promotion, the raise, the bonus, and when you do, you'll be happier. Like, happiness is out there. It's only one or two PayPal clicks away for us, or a new outfit, or gadget, or car payment, or mortgage. Let me say what, what most of you have come to know, and maybe we learned it too late. That that carrot dangling out in front of our nose is attached to a stick. And we're being beaten down by it. The French sociologist, a man man named Jean Baudrillard, made the point that in, in the Western world, that really, it's not atheism that has displaced Christianity. It's materialism. We get our meaning, he said. We get our meaning in life from what we consume. We get our meaning in life from what we consume. We get identity from the things that we buy. We don't want to admit it, but, but it's what I wear. It's the brand of phone that I use, the car that I drive, the neighborhood that I live in, the gadgets that I flaunt. For a lot of people, these things aren't just things. They are identities. Shopping is the number one leisure activity in our culture, usurping a place that used to be held by religion. And if that's the case, Amazon is probably the new temple. And our visa statement is the altar on which we pay our sacrifices. Maybe double-clicking is the liturgy we follow. And, and lifestyle bloggers and advertisers convincing us that this is what you really need. They're the priests. They're the priestesses. Money is the new God. Jesus called it out. In fact, the only God that he ever names, the only false God ever mentioned in in any of his teachings is the one that came in our reading this morning. Mammon, the God of money. Why does Jesus call this one out? Because it's a bad God and it's a lousy religion. It's easy to forget, you know, that... That it wasn't that long ago, just kind of a blip on the timeline of history, less than a century ago for, for much of our, much of our own country, that, that most Canadians live vastly different lives than we do now. I'm not recommending this, uh, and I'll just acknowledge that, yeah, I was on Facebook again this week a little bit. But one of the things that really captured my attention are the historical photos that keep popping up. This is what Burnhamthorpe looked like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, before there was a square one and, and all of that activity. 90% of Canadians were farmers. Life was hard, but it was simpler. And mostly we lived on the land and we traded with our neighbors for the other things that we needed. And money was rarely ever needed or used. And most of the things that people owned fell under the category of needs, not wants. And then something changed. started about 100 years ago. Climaxed in the 1950s. Something changed. It wasn't an accident. It was entirely by design. There was a mind behind it. I think there was an evil mind behind it. Uh, one banker in Wall Street described it this way he said, Here's what we need to do. We need to shift America's attention from focusing on needs to focusing on desires. People must be trained to desire things, to want new things, even before the old things have been entirely used up. We must shape a new mentality. People's desires must overcome their needs. And it worked horrifically well. By 1927, one journalist observed this about the change coming in society. It said, This new change is coming, it has taken over our democracy. It's called consumptionism. And a citizen's first importance to their country is no longer that of a citizen, but as a consumer. Fast forward to today, and now our emerging consumer economy is built entirely around people spending money they don't have on things they don't need. There was a moment in the book when, when John Mark Comer took my mind back to a, a horrific moment in in modern history, and we're living in another one of those horrific moments. But any of you will remember that just aching feeling of loss and emptiness that surrounded us on 9/11. And what do we do with all of that? And as people began to climb out of the rubble of their lives. We had the counsel given by the, by the leader of the free world, so-called. You remember what he said? And I don't mean to be down on him. He was just articulating what everything in our culture has taught us. As, as we emerge from this tragedy, here's what we need to do. Go out and do some shopping. Remember that? Go do some shopping. It'll make you feel better. We've all heard about how our apartments, our houses are twice the size that they were even 50 years ago, even though our families are less than half the size. This is all driven by a single engine. It's driven by advertising. or let's call it what it is. Propaganda. Propaganda that's not appealing to our rational brains, but to something a lot less logical, to that little part of our brain waiting for the endorphin rush that comes as soon as we press the buy button. You know, prior to the 1950s, World War II, I mean, there was advertising, there's always been advertising, but it was dramatically different. Than it, than it is today, advertising would maybe tell you about a product, describe it, maybe even why this product might be better than the other, but there 's no sense that if you buy this product you 'll be happier life will be will be better somehow. This is the, the golden ticket. Uh, listen to some ads I found these amusing. These are from two hundred years ago simplicity, durability, speed. Visibility, the Franklin typewriter. (laughs) How about this one? Sorry about this, ladies. Bad memory here. Dr. Warner's celebrated coralline corsets. They are boned boned with genuine coralline, which is the only material used for corsets that can be guaranteed not to wrinkle or break. (laughs) One more. Tired? Drink Coca Cola, it relieves exhaustion. <laughs> I should be an Energizer Bunny. I don't... But notice absolutely nothing about how a product is going to change your life and make you happy. Around the 1950s, everything changed. We don't have a lot of time to go into why. We know why. Actually, Comer does a great job of explaining why if you're curious. But everything changed. Advertising became a means of propaganda to drive a drastic change in the way society felt about itself. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is intentionally designed to deceive people. They will get you to believe that this product or that one will make you happier. And to do that, they have to bend over backwards to make us think that our wants are actually needs. And so those 4,000 or more ads that we see every day, day after day after day, have been intentionally designed to stoke this fire of desire in our bellies. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with desire. God created us to desire things. But when our desire is attached to the wrong things, the things that we consume wind up consuming us. They offer a promise on which they cannot deliver. Remember that great quote, you know, uh, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Thee, Lord. When desires attached to the wrong thing, the effects are are oh, catastrophic. A journalist, a man named Greg Esterbrook, wrote a, a book. The subtitle is far more interesting than the title. The title is A Progress Paradox, but his subtitle is How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. <laughs> and, and he said this. He said, Adjusting for population growth We now know that 10 times as many people in our Western nations suffer from severe depression, unremitting bad feelings without any specific cause. 10 times as many people as did only 50 years ago. And this is the bullet point. He says, Americans and Europeans have ever more of everything except happiness. So what do we do? I mean, we're not Luddites. We don't go back to living in shacks and using outhouses and give up running water. I'm not suggesting you go out and burn your debit card. That doesn't fix the problem because the problem is not stuff. The problem is we have been trained to put no limit on this insatiable desire for the accumulation of stuff. And we think that we need all these things in order to be happy when actually we may find that we need very few. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, they, they put it this way, First Timothy 6, if we have food and clothing, we can be content with that. What if the only things, material things, that we really need to live and, and enjoy rich, satisfying lives are food to eat, clothing on our backs, and a place to live? If you doubt your ability to live that way and thrive, let me just say, you you are not alone. There's part of me that wants to jump off the stage and join you. You're not alone. The propaganda machine is working like a charm, and most of us have believed it. More money, more stuff, more security, more happiness. And like all dangerous lies, it's dangerous because it's half true or it's true to a point. More money can ease a tremendous level of burden and can bring a settled sense of security and happiness if you're poor. And let's not make the mistake of glamorizing poverty. It's horrible, and lifting people up out of poverty is one of the great missions given to God's people in the church. Lifting them out of poverty for sure will bring happiness, but only to a point. And we now know almost exactly what that point is. Do you want to know what it is? No? Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, sure you do. $75,000. Where did that come from? A landmark study. Two great minds working out of Princeton University. They spent months poring over data, went through 450,000 surveys conducted about people's overall overall sense of well-being. And what they found is that, yes, having enough income can bring happiness, but only to a point, And then it plateaus, or, or even more dangerously can actually start to decline. In fact, let me, let me read just a little bit about their conclusion. They said that no matter where you live, your emotional well-being is about as good as it's going to get at $75,000. That's where the number comes from. And money's not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's kind of like you hit some sort of ceiling and and you can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more money. So it turns out that what most of us in the West would classify as a a middle-class life, um, that's about as good as it gets. And beyond that, money and stuff just cannot deliver on the promise of happiness. Truth is, poverty is horrible and it's hard. And a middle-class life is a real gift. But after that, the law of diminishing returns. It just hits, and it hits hard. One cultural commentator, he coined a term. you probably heard it. He called the disease affluenza. Affluenza. And there is no vaccine for that one. But there are strategies, and we're going to get to them. I mean, the psalm writers knew this 3,000 years ago. Psalm 39, in vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. One of the reasons that happiness is plummeting, at least in the West, even while the stock market rises, and I know there's blips, but it goes up and up and up. One of the reasons is because materialism, the accumulation of stuff, has sped up our our society to a a frenetic, untenable pace. Alan Fadling, he said this, just a great insight, that the drive to possess things is the engine for hurry. One of the key insights, and uh, I I love the way Comer put it, he says, every single thing that you buy costs you not only money but time it costs you time you have to work more hours at your job to pay for it you have to work faster getting through your day to get everything done you have to keep all of that stuff clean and maintain when it breaks you have to fix it less time means more hurry and it doesn't matter whether you're into cars or sneakers or Japanese anime Most of us simply have too much stuff to enjoy the stuff we have at a kind of healthy, unhurried pace. And instead of spending time, or instead of spending money to get time, we spend time to get money, to buy more stuff. This is about the point. It's happening every week. It's about 12 o'clock when I look out at the faces and think, boy, they're never coming back again. <laughs> so let's turn this thing around a little bit. What if Jesus was right? What if he was right? I mean, Jesus is many things, and this is not the most important thing, but, but he was this too. He was the most intelligent teacher who ever lived. And his teachings, they're not just memorable they're right, and they're not right in some arbitrary sense. They're good. This is good moral teaching. And and if you've never heard this before, morality in the end is not about, you know, this is what you ought to do, and this is the naughty list. Don't do those things. Morality is about a way to live that is good and true. And, and in reality... The teachings of Jesus aren't arbitrary at all. They're laws. They're moral laws, no different from scientific laws. E equals mc squared. The law of gravity. Gravity. These are these are statements about how the world works. And if you ignore them, not only do you risk rupturing your relationship with the one who made the world, with God, but but you're kind of going against the grain of the universe. Remember that great quote from last week? If you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. we got a bunch of them, don't we? So many of Jesus' teachings, especially around money and stuff, are just telling stories about the way the world really is. Listen to them. Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, notice, that's not a command. That's, it's also not some arbitrary law. It's just an observation about how the world is and about the human condition. And those of you who have experimented, you're just going to nod your head and say, you know what, that's right. I had more fun giving stuff away than I ever did getting it. You cannot serve, Jesus says, Matthew 6, both God and money. Again, it's not a command. He doesn't say, do not serve both God and money. He just says you can't. That's just the way life is. Luke 12, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Again, not a command, don't buy more than three pairs of shoes. It just makes a statement about the way life really works. And you see what he's doing. He's trying to teach things that are true. Now, whether we believe him or not, that's another matter. But either way, the ideas about money and stuff correspond to reality in ways that that the views we have been grown up to hold on to absolutely don't. Ours are borderline pathological. You know, they say something like 25% of all Jesus' teachings are around money and stuff, and none of them are really positive. Where the prosperity gospel ever came from, I have no idea, but it, it didn't come from Jesus. His will for your life is not the accumulation of never-ending piles of stuff or numbers in an account. Yeah. So, let's uh, again, let's turn this around. Let's start by asking some questions. Here's the first one. What if the formula that we've been raised with, more stuff equals more happiness... What if it turns out that's just bad math? What if more stuff actually equals more stress? More hours in the office? More debt? More years working in a job we don't enjoy anymore because we can't afford to stop? More time wasted cleaning, maintaining, fixing, organizing, updating, reorganizing, all the stuff. What if more stuff actually equals less of what matters most less time less health to roger's point this wears our bodies out less financial freedom less generosity which according to jesus is where the real joy is less peace As I hurry my way through another shopping mall parking lot. Less focus on what my life could actually be about. Less mental real estate left over for creativity. Less relationship. Less margin. Less prayer. Less of what I actually care care about. Let's listen in on Jesus. Uh, Again, we're trying to offer tools. Tools tools modeled after the life and the lifestyle of Jesus. and His most in-depth teaching on this subject is found right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a big chunk. It's like 25% of the whole sermon is devoted to this one topic. The rest sort of get one line. This one, boy, he camps out here as if Jesus knew even then how perilous this could be. Listen in on these words. You've heard them once already, but Boy, we need to hear them again and again. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Don't buy a lot of stuff that's going to wear out. Where thieves break in and steal. And you're so afraid if you park your car too, away, too far away from the streetlight, somebody's going to rip you off. Instead, here's an idea, Jesus says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Invest in things that aren't subject to to corrosion and loss, that aren't going to wind up in the landfill. And then he says tellingly, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where you put your resources, that's where you put your heart. Again, this isn't a command. This is just a statement about what's true. Jesus goes on to say something and, and boy, at least when I read it, I scratch my head. But listen to it. Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is filled up with light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you're thinking, huh, what in the world? Is this optometry class now? What does this have to do with money and stuff? So here's what's going on. You, do you know what an idiom is, a figure of speech? We have idioms in our language. How many of you speak more than one language? Look at you all. What a brilliant bunch. How many feel like you barely speak one? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, If you speak more than one language, you know that the hardest thing to translate is an idiom, a figure of speech. It just doesn't cross over. So this is a first century idiom that just kind of falls on our ears and lands like a dud because it just doesn't work. In the first century, if people said you had a healthy eye, it had a double meaning. It meant first that you are focused on living with a high degree of intentionality. It's like your eyes are on the horizon, your hands are on the wheel. You, you you you're careful about the choices that you're making. That's the first thing it meant. Here's the second thing it meant. It meant you were generous in dealing with the poor. It means you saw the needs around you. You weren't blind to them. So it's intentionality in living, and generosity in dealing with the poor. An unhealthy eye, or an unhealthy eye. The King James version is an evil eye was the opposite. As you look out at the world, you're constantly distracted by the next glittery thing. Squirrel. I mean, it just—it works like that. And, And you lose focus on what matters. And then in turn, you close your eyes and your fists to the needs of the poor. And then Jesus takes it over the finish line. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, cannot not should not for jesus it's it's a non option you can't serve both god and the system that aspires to replace him and you can't have freedom the way that god intended if you get sucked into the overconsumption that is it's considered absolutely normal for our society the two are exclusive you have to decide you have to decide and then jesus says one last thing here Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. The word therefore is the key, because otherwise that statement sounds preposterous. Who doesn't worry about life from time to time? Therefore, it ties together those three short teachings about money and stuff into one profound idea about worry. The basic idea We tend to get worried most about the things that we worship most. If you worship money, it will eat you alive. The things that you are consuming consume you. Now, is there a way off the merry-go-round? Yeah, I mean, that's the good news. There, There's tools, including one central idea from Jesus that will help us break free from this soul-sucking set of habits that we've learned. The answer comes in the form of a single word. The word is simplicity. Simplicity. Or maybe simple living. That's two words, but maybe a little clearer. Uh, the, The monks in the Middle Ages, they called this frugality, being frugal. That came to be a negative thing, an insult, so we maybe don't use that one anymore, frugality. but The trendy word now in our culture is minimalism. Minimalism, you've heard that before. Lots of secular writers. But, you know, they're focused more on principles of design and architecture. Jesus is speaking to the heart. So what's simplicity? Well, what's it not? Again, this isn't how to build houses that look different. It's not about architecture and design. Secondly, and hear me on this, it's not about poverty. It's not about living in a bare home with an empty closet and a growling stomach and a joyless life and no freedom to enjoy things. God has populated the world with beautiful things and says, you know, this is for you. Take delight the in them. Minimalism isn't about living with nothing. It's about living with a little less. And thirdly, minimalism is not about organizing your stuff. I mean, Q. Maria, is it Como, right? Maria Como. Have I got that right? Condo. Maria, sorry, Maria, if you're watching. Bless you. Maria Condo. I mean, this isn't about reorganizing your stuff and cleaning out your garage and your closet every spring, every spring and then making a run to, to Walmart for a dozen big Tupperware containers and a label gun because you got nowhere to put it all. Uh, what is simplicity? What is minimalism? It's intentionally... Promoting the things that we know are most important and removing the things that distract us from them. It's about priorities and reshuffling our priorities in a way that matters and brings joy. Richard Foster wrote about this like 30 years ago, a seminal book on the Christian disciplines, which really is what we're talking about all month. He said, simplicity is an inward reality it gets reflected in our outward lifestyle. It's choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. I love that. The goal isn't to declutter your closet or your garage. It's to declutter your life. This is normally the... Point at which there's something that goes off in my head, and maybe yours, that's a little bit cynical, and think, well, you know, that's that's teaching for rich people. You know, we're working so hard just to pay the mortgage, and you know, this isn't for us. Well, I mean, maybe that's true. Poor people don't call this simple living; they just call it living barely living sometimes they don't need to read books on minimalism they're too busy praying for justice and for a fair share of what the world offers and again no no guilt trip here but just a, a little bit of context if you make more than $25,000 a year i didn't do this in the first service hands up if you make more than $25,000 a year in your household be honest be honest you are in the top 10% of the world's most wealthy citizens. Now, if you make more than $34,000 a year, I'm not going to do the hands-up thing, but <laughs> be honest. You're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people who have ever lived. I want you to listen to some words, and then we're just kind of coming up to the finish line. This is, but we're not hurried, Right? Nobody's, nobody's in a hurry. Okay. This is Paul writing to, uh, to a, a rich audience in Ephesus. First Timothy 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in the wealth. It's uncertain. Again, it's not the wealth that's the problem. It's, it's what we invest in it. If, if that's our hope, if that's our identity. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be willing to share, and in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves. I wonder where Paul got that idea. Strike a chord of familiarity? Uh, Lay up treasure for themselves, a firm foundation for this coming age, and they may take hold of, and here's where the expression comes from, that life that is truly life. And we read a verse like that and 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 there's something in the cynical part of us that says, yeah, but that's for rich people. And and maybe I know a few rich people, and it's for them, but it's not for us. Truth is, even if I weren't rich, and it turns out that I am, and so are most of you, I'm not off the hook here. Jesus' teachings on money weren't just to rich people. Remember, his primary audience are people who were actually quite poor, materialistically. I mean, he was friends with the rich and the poor. Lots of stories about him hanging out and enjoying dinner with his rich friends so much so that the gospels say, maybe with a little bit of tongue in cheek, that, that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, hanging out, feasting with all these wealthy people. But, but we know that his primary audience was those who, they were poor. And so in the life and the tension, in the life and the teachings of Jesus, we, we see a tension that runs all the way through Scripture. On the one hand, the world and everything in it, a world that is abundant and good. Remember, G, Remember, God looks out of the world and says not just it's good, it's very good, and I'm giving it to you. Enjoy it, delight in it. And we're supposed to be able to do that. And maybe that includes the things that the world offers. So that's the one side. But on the other side, too much wealth is Dangerous, catastrophically so. And it has the potential to turn our hearts away from God. So there's this tension of God saying, enjoy what the world offers, but make sure you're in, enjoy- in your enjoyment the things you're consuming don't consume you. To follow Jesus, I think, in the West, in this generation, involves that same tension. Living gratefully, enjoying what's beautiful in the world, but also aspiring to live simply. And if you're in doubt, err on the side of generosity and simplicity. So let's, uh, let's end this. I, I want to give you some experiments that you can run, okay? starting this week, some experiments. Uh, here's a few suggestions if this, is, uh, if this has struck a chord in you and you think, well, Jesus, what do I do? What's the next step? 10, and they're going to come just really rapidly for those of you who are feeling hurried. Here's the first one. Before you buy something, ask yourself what is the real cost of this item? What's the real cost? And not just I put it on a credit card and I'm going to have to pay some interest and it actually costs me more, but how much time is going to be required to pay that thing off and to maintain it and to replace it? What's the real cost? Second thing, before you buy something, ask yourself, In buying this, am I doing something that is oppressing the poor or harming the earth? Scientists now tell us that that we would need five planets the size of earth in order for everyone on the planet to live with the same footprint that we do here in Canada. Am I taking more of this earth than, than really I have a right to? Here's the third one. You know this. Don't impulse buy don't You might be shocked at how good it feels to load up your cart with something and look at it and then delete it. <laughs> Felt good. Didn't do it this time. Here's the fourth one. This might sound a little bit contrary to what we said, but hear me out. When you do buy something, because you're not going to stop buying, and I'm not saying you stop buying, opt to buy fewer things, but but buy better things. Buy a better toaster. It will last, you saved up for it, it'll last you 20 years. It won't wind up in the landfill three years from now. Buy fewer things, buy better things, and enjoy them. Fifth idea, when you can, share. Your brother has it, you don't need it, borrow it. You have it, lend it. Oh, It's hard. <laughs> Get in the habit of giving some things away. Here's the seventh one. No surprise here. Live by a budget. My wife is in the room. Boy, she's giving me the look. (laughs) I pray God gives you a wife that gives you the look. Live by a budget. Number eight, learn to enjoy things without needing to own them. And following on that, One of the things I think God has given us most to enjoy comes absolutely free to all of us. Cultivate a deep appreciation for for creation, for the world of God that is right outside your door. Learn to live there and love there. And here's the last one. Begin to cultivate an appreciation for the simple pleasures. And as you gather together in small groups this week to unpack some of these ideas, you might want to encourage each other by what those are for you. What are the simple pleasures in life? I mean, just let's, let's close up here. Uh, to be fair, to be fair, simplicity is not the answer to the hurried pace of our world. At least it's not the whole answer. There's no silver bullet here. But it's part. And depending on your starting point, it might be a really big part of learning to live differently. When I was 14 years old, uh, I was part of a a Christian organization. It doesn't exist anymore in Canada. I think it's still going on in England. Boys Brigade, it was called. And uh, at 14, they gave me a life verse and a little Bible. I still have it. It's in my office. Precious to me. It's okay to have things that are precious. Um, Philippians 3.14. Some of you know, uh, I press on towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But I remember my leader saying, you know, Richard, if you ever mix that up in a little bit of dyslexia, and instead of Philippians 3.14, you get Philippians 4.13. That might be a great life verse, too. You know Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I've carried that around as a life verse. And you know what I never really noticed until this week? the verses that came right before it. Let me read them for you. Philippians 4.11. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And only then... Only then do we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The truth is, happiness, it's here. Joy is here right now when it's affixed to the right things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I Think we should pray? I think we should pray. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, for some of us in the room, these words have just been a familiar, warm echo of principles that we have lived with and tried to practice for years. But boy, for some, this has been hard. But wherever we're starting, Lord, I, I pray that, that as your word gets planted into our lives, that you would, that you would allow it, to grow and flourish in just the way that's needed most for us. For some, I pray the courage to make decisions that initially are going to be hard. I pray for affirmation that comes in the form of joy, having made them and realized that, you know what, Jesus was right. Lord, you're right in this. I pray that you be with this family in the coming days as we experiment a little bit with lives of greater simplicity. We do so in the name of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, but realizing that Jesus' great hope was to see our own lives be full, rich, abundant, a life that is truly life. Together we pray in his name. Amen.